Peter, how are you doing, man? Fantastic. Yourself? I'm doing great. Hey, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me here. Yeah, no worries. It's my pleasure. So, you know, I was doing some research on you, and uh, I got to say that the, the story is pretty cool. And, uh, you know, I admire your ability to kind of take that chance in life and go after, you know, what it is you want. And so kind of if you if you can do for me is kind of give me the background on, you know, your training style. You, you've mentioned before that, you know, you you're into CrossFit. And so how did that kind of marry into the the, the creation of fringe sport? Yeah, awesome question. And thank you very much. So, how much time we got? You got time for the deep dive? I, I've got as much time here? as you do. Love it. Okay, let's do this. So, <clears throat> this all goes back to high school for me, as I think it does with many people. In high school, I wanted to be on the school soccer team so badly. So bad I could taste it. But I was never good enough. I didn't have good enough soccer skills. I wasn't fast enough, I wasn't strong or resilient enough, and, and so it never worked. So I, I had that like scar that I was carrying with me. And then when I went to college, I found out about this beautiful thing called rugby. And the great thing about rugby at the University of Texas where I went was that they took anyone who showed up and had a pulse. And so here I was, not good enough to play soccer on my high school soccer team, but I could play rugby for the University of Texas. So I did that, and as I was playing rugby, you know, maybe not the, the best, <laughs> it became apparent to me that I knew basically nothing about strength and conditioning. They told us in between seasons, they said, hey, you guys need to go and build some muscle in the off season. So I bought some like men's fitness magazines, I bought some muscle and fitness, and basically went and did a bunch of bench presses, which I don't know how familiar you are with rugby, but not gonna be super helpful on the rugby pitch. So fast forward to after college, I got started running and that's where I first started to learn about how to periodize and how to really train. Obviously it wasn't strength and conditioning necessarily, but I learned a little bit about that. I leaned up a whole lot, I ran a few marathons and I got sick of being so skinny and relatively weak. And then that's the point, that was 2005, that's the point at which I found out about CrossFit on an online forum. And it was actually an online running forum. And somebody said, hey, has anybody heard of this crazy CrossFit thing? And most of the people on the forum said, oh, this sounds really stupid. But I looked at it, I followed his link, and I was like, wow, this is pretty crazy. So I started going to the main page, you know, CrossFit.com. I started trying to do stuff in my garage. I, uh, Greg Glassman wrote an awesome call to arms, I guess. I think it was the second episode or edition of the CrossFit Journal where he talked about building a garage gym. And I said, that's amazing. So I started building a gym in my garage using the precepts that he had there. And I started seeking out more like-minded people, both online and the CrossFit Forum was a huge resource in those days and then locally in Austin, Texas. So I connected with a few CrossFit trainers here in Austin. I eventually really started running way less 
and started training way more, got into CrossFit, was a main page type athlete. Although when John Wellborn came out with CrossFit football, I love that, especially given my rugby background, super love CrossFit football. And eventually through that, decided to found Fringe Sports, the company that I run now. As part of that journey, I had learned a lot more about strength and conditioning. I also found a local gym here in Austin, Texas named Atomic Athlete. Now, when I found it, I thought that I was going to be a member of different CrossFit gyms here locally in Austin for like three months each and just rotate around, you know, let the gyms know up front that's what was my plan. But when I joined Atomic Athlete, which to be clear is functional fitness, but it is not a CrossFit affiliate. I just fell in love with their training methodology and I've been at Atomic for about the last, oh geez, it's probably seven years at this point. Pretty crazy. So Atomic uses a, they're a derivative of Rob Shaw's, oh, what is he, what is this called? A mountain athlete. And he has another name for his programming as well. But basically what they do is they use a idea called fluid periodization where they are periodizing the training to do a strength cycle followed by what they call work capacity, which is lifting slash, I guess, conditioning that is in the like five to 10 minute time frame. So you're trying to optimize that. So you do a periodized strength cycle, deload, roll into a periodized work capacity cycle, deload, and then roll into a stamina slash endurance cycle load and then you go back to the start and then you work on strength again so that has been the style of training that I've been subjecting myself to for the past seven years or so although I have started to change it up a little bit recently so that is my <laughs> fairly lengthy history of how I train Wow, that's that's uh, that's pretty cool. What are your thoughts on the deloading process? Because there's, uh, we had talked about it in, in the last podcast. Um, you know, there's there's uh, varying opinions on it. What are your thoughts on the deloading process? I'm going to give you a very uneducated opinion because I actually have no kinesiology background at all, and I have no coaching background at all. So I want to be very clear about that. So I'm really only experienced with it from, let's say, a couple of blog posts about why you might deload or what I might hear in the gym, right. and then what I've experienced with my body as an athlete. So what I've experienced from my body as an athlete is I do believe, for me, that if I'm doing a proper periodized training cycle that I am dedicating myself to, then I can tell that my body likes the deload. Again, this is a one data point, just, just my body type of thing. However, I have a really bad problem of, I, I love to lift, I love to run, I love to play soccer, I love to ride my bike. There's a Velaway out here, I, I love to rollerblade on that. And so, to be honest, in the past, I'm trying to think, the past five years, I think I've only really dedicated myself to a training cycle, like like five years ago. So, so maybe once in the last five years. And at that point, again, when I was dedicated to a training cycle, working really hard on that, then uh, my body seemed to like the deload. 
if I'm not dedicated and I'm doing a bunch of other crap in addition to or instead of the cycle that I'm supposed to be working on for training, I think that the deload is, is basically useless for me. Yeah, okay. I, I think I think you make some good points there about that and, and that kind of kind of brings out what we had discussed. I, I think it a lot of it depends on the individual and, and kind of ultimately what your routine is and, and how how intense that is. So that's okay, that's good. So going back to, you know, when you started training and, and at this time I'm assuming you were also when you were starting into the, the CrossFit training, you were you were at the time working for a different company, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I worked for ten years for an e commerce company here in Austin, Texas called Living Direct. That's right. So it had nothing to do with sports, fitness, conditioning, lifting, anything like that. So what made you decide to jump out on your own and of all things jump into the highly competitive market such as as fitness what and, and kind of what also made you come up with the name I'm, I'm very intrigued by that oh awesome I love it so I have joked especially I've been running French now for 10 years or almost 10 years I've joked that I'm a terrible employee and it's, it's funny for me to say that because I was an employee even when I was going to college as an undergrad, and I was employed for that previous company for literally a decade, for 10 years. And I look back at it, and I think that I did a lot of good there when I was an employee for our customers, for the company, all that sort of thing. But I still think I maybe have just this problem with authority or something like that. But, so back to why I decided to leave Living Direct is I really wanted to do my own thing. I had this, burning desire that I needed to make my way in the world and not be beholden to someone else or, or be working in someone else's company. It was just something that was bouncing around in my head. Furthermore, I've always been someone who has really defined myself to a large extent based on my profession or what I'm doing daily or in my nine to five. One of the stories that I tell people about this is when I married my wife, I was working for this other company, and I was working in appliances. So I married my wife, we went on our honeymoon, I was down in Mexico, and I saw a keg beer refrigerator behind the bar of a resort where we were honeymooning, and I asked if I could go behind the bar and take a look at the kegerator, because I had noticed from the outside that there was something interesting that they were doing with their compressor that I'd never seen before in a keg beer refrigerator like that. So here we are on our honeymoon in paradise, supposed to be drinking and you know swimming and having a good time, and I'm like have a flashlight, like looking in the guts of this kegerator in the back of a bar and my wife is like you have got a problem something's wrong with you buddy so i reflected on that sort of thing and i thought you know what if i'm gonna put all of myself into what i'm doing it needs to be in an industry where i feel really passionate about and that i really feel i'm making a difference in the world and in our customers lives so I, I thought about other industries that I might go into or things that I was passionate about. And a couple of things, a few things came up. I was really passionate about travel. I was really passionate about watches. 
I was really passionate about CrossFit. And this was 2009 when I was doing a lot of this thinking. Maybe 2008, rolling into 2009. I had been doing CrossFit since 2005, and I believed in the movement. And by the way, still do believe in the movement. I don't want to make it seem like I don't believe in the movement anymore. I believed in the movement. And I had seen from around 2005 when I started doing CrossFit, if I told somebody at a party, hey, I do CrossFit, they would say, oh yeah, I do cross training also. But then in 2008, 2009, if you told somebody, hey, I do CrossFit, most of the people would be like, oh, isn't that that crazy exercise cult thing? <laughs> so they would, they would start to know what CrossFit was. And I would say, oh, it's not a cult. You should come do it with me. You know, something like that. <laughs> but even, even at that time, 08, 09, there were a lot of people, especially online, who were saying, hey, CrossFit is about to run out of steam, about to run out of steam, about to run out of steam. And I didn't believe it. I said, no, this movement is changing at least the fitness world, the strength and conditioning world. And I believe that it's still got legs. I also looked at what the options were at that time. Remember I mentioned I read the second CrossFit journal, which said, build a gym in your garage. I also really believed in that. And I had been doing it. I had built up a really nice gym in my garage, but it was totally odds and sods. There was stuff that I grabbed off of Craigslist. There's stuff that I'd made. There was stuff that I had bought from gyms going out of business. There's stuff that I had bought from Rogue. But at that time, even at that time, there was no single place where you could get your whole garage outfitted or even a whole, let's say, CrossFit gym affiliate outfitted without piecemealing from a few different places. So I said, you know what? I have an internet marketing e-commerce background. Also at that time, I had been doing a lot of product development in the appliance market. I said, you know what? I can bring all this together under one roof and I can offer to, at that time I was thinking CrossFitters. Now we've expanded and broadened quite a bit. I can offer them a one-stop shop with world-class customer service where they can build either an awesome garage gym or an awesome, what we now call community gym. At that time, we might have called a box. Uh, and we can bring awesome customer service and really help people improve their lives. And that's really where it started. Just the hypothesis that I could do that. That's that's an, uh, an awesome story. And so what, what made you decide, uh, you know, to, to pull the trigger on it? It's interesting that you asked that. There were two things. Thing number one is I went out to lunch with the CFO at Living Direct, my old company. And I, I went out to lunch with him on the regular at that time. He was a little bit older gentleman, been around the block a couple of times, seen a few different companies. And I was talking to him about how I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to start my own business. So at this particular lunch, I was talking with him and he said, Pete, I know how much money you make. You know, he's the CFO of the company, so he, he has access to all the financials. I said, oh yeah, you know, what does that mean? I mean, I don't know how much money you make. Why, why are we talking about this? And he said, Pete, I think you have a problem. You're making just enough money right now that if you make any more money, 
you're never gonna start your own business. And I said, what, what do you mean by that? Like, that's a weird thing to say. And he said, look, money is a drug. Once you start making a certain amount of money, you're never gonna be able to go without that supply again. You're gonna you know, go into withdrawal. You're not even gonna want to not make that money. Like the, the idea of, of not making that money for any period of time is gonna give you the, the jimmies. It's gonna make your skin crawl. So you've been talking about starting your own business. You should quit right now and you should start your own business. Otherwise, you're gonna get hooked on the money. I can already see it happening in your eyes. You should quit right now and start your own business. And I was like, wow, holy crap. And it wasn't too much longer after that that I did in fact do that. So that was, that was number one thing, which is really a revelatory conversation with the CFO at the company that I work for. And I really thank him for it. It's, it's really a very brave thing for him to do to tell, you know, without being, you know, toot my own horn, you know, right. one of the kind of rising stars in that company that they should just quit and leave. So, you know, I salute him for doing that. The second thing that happened is my wife was pregnant with our first child. And that was a cause of great excitement for me. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that's one of the most major and proud things in my life is, is being a father to her and my other daughter who came along a little bit later. But I thought a lot about what the CFO had said to me about finances. And when I saw my first daughter come into this world, I thought, wow, you know, I can talk a good game as much as I, I want to about, you know, oh, I can eat ramen or I can, you know, not have a nice house or not have a nice car, you know, not make very much money. But the reality is that I don't want my daughter or, or kid or kids that, that are coming to want or, or have a poor life as a result of choices that I'm choosing to make. So I remember the conversation where the CFO said, you need to start a company now. And then I looked at my kid and thought, you know, once this kid gets a little bit older, you know, everybody talks about how expensive kids are, I need to jump ship right now and figure out how to make money on my own. Otherwise, it's going to be too late. And so those two things happened in relatively quick succession. And I thought, you know what, I got to do it now. And then I also read the four-hour work week right in that time frame. And Tim Ferriss in that book tries to give everybody a kick in the butt to, to start their own business. And so that also helped. Wow, that's that's uh, that's a pretty interesting story. So, how did you? So, you you went ahead and, and and left your old job. Can you can you explain to me like what were you know what were the thoughts? What did your wife think? You know what was the uh, what was the dynamic like as you were trying to to get you know get everything uh, gathered up for you know whether it be its supplies or trying to figure out you know what exactly it is to to do. Yeah, my wife Valerie, she was amazing during this time frame. She, when she married me, when we got married, she never thought that she was gonna be the primary money earner at any point in our relationship. And here I was asking her not only to be the primary money earner, but for me to make no money for an undetermined period of time. So, bless her heart, she said yes. That said, it's really funny to me, and I laugh about it with her. She didn't understand what she was agreeing to at that time. I think she thought that I was gonna 
not make money for a little while while I was starting my business. And then all of a sudden, you know, the trees were going to just start raining down $100 bills on us or something like that. And that's not what happened. In, in fact, I'm friends with another podcaster, uh, Dan, or two podcasters in addition, uh, Dan and Ian at the Tropical MBA podcast. And they have this idea, I, I think I'm going to garble it slightly, and it's the thousand day theorem or something like that, where basically they say, if you have a job and you're making X amount of dollars in income, and then you quit, start your own entrepreneurial venture, it's going to take you a thousand days or roughly three years to get back to where you were from an income financial standpoint. And to be honest, that's pretty much what it was for me. So I went from a fairly cushy corporate job to taking about three years to get back to where I was before. And I think my wife thought like, okay, six months and then we're going to be back. So it was a little rocky at that point. But you asked about that transition period. I actually started Fringe Sport on the side while I was still working at that other company. Now, I knew that they weren't going to be thrilled with me having a side project, so I actually didn't tell anyone at the company about it at the time. So that was a little sketchy. I didn't feel good about what I saw as you know, lying or hiding something from my employer. I really did want to share it, but I feared, and, and I think my fear was valid, that they would not be super happy with it. Even though it wasn't inflicting in any way, they would say, well, how can you be focusing on your job or, or think, how can you be focusing on your job while you're doing this on the side? So for better or worse, I didn't tell them. I ran the business for a year on the side uh, with my brother, who I had asked to come in as a co-founder at that time. Additionally, in the four hour work week, Tim Ferriss talks about this idea of a muse business, M-U-S-E. His idea of a muse business is essentially a business that produces passive income that allows you to live the life that you want to live. And so initially, I had thought that fringe sport might be a muse type of business, which is to say I wouldn't have to spend very much time on it. It would kick out cash and profit and I'd be able to go live on a beach or you know whatever the idea is. So after a year of running it on the side, two things became super apparent to me. One, this was not a great news business. And by the way, I'm not aware of any great news businesses, period, at this point. So A, Fringe is not a great news business, but B, Fringe could be a really amazing business that really helps our customers and helps make the world a better place through helping people improve their lives with strength. But it would never get to that as a side project. It needed me, and at that time my co-founder, focusing on it full time and really building Fringe out. So that's the point at which I had the conversation with my wife and then later quit my job and focus full-time on Fringe. Now, you had asked another question about the name. How did I come up with the name? Right. So the, the short, boring answer is that I, type, I typed a whole ton of names into GoDaddy or something like that, and Fringe Sport was available. The longer, slightly longer answer to that question is that I did go through that process because I wanted a domain name that was catchy yet available, I also like the two word contractions, but 
even at that time, everybody was X fit. Or sorry, X I mean as a variable. Right. You know, something fit, something fitness. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Everybody else is doing that. So I thought, okay, at that time, CrossFit was not only a, let's say, exercise or wellness movement, but it was starting to be a sport. This is again, you know, 2008, 2009. So it's starting to be a sport. And so I thought, well, you know what? Uh, oh, sorry. And then one other thing about it starting to be a sport is a lot of the early throwdowns or CrossFit competitions, they would have t-shirts made and on the back of the t-shirt, it would say athlete. And everybody who signed up was an athlete, quote unquote. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting. And I started thinking about barbell sport, essentially, and how that fits into strength and conditioning. And then I thought, if you look at the demographics of America or Western societies, or basically any society that develops, everybody gets, by some measures, healthier. You have less infant mortality, you've got longer lifespans, that sort of thing. But you also get more incidents of obesity, and illnesses that are, let's say, lifestyle illnesses or related to basically eating too much and moving too little. So from that, I figured we're always going to be on the fringes. We're always going to be on the edge. As much as I'd like to put a barbell and the knowledge to use that barbell into everyone's hands, the reality is it will never happen. So we're always going to be an underground movement. You know, Mark Ripito, I'm probably going to butcher this quote. He has a quote that's something like, I welcome you to the community of people who will no longer take the easy way or something like that. Because to get under a barbell or to follow some sort of real and meaningful strength and conditioning program means subjecting yourself to discomfort in order to try to better yourself. And that will always be at the fringes. So when I saw that the domain name for Fringe Sport was available, I jumped on it. And that was it. That's that's a that's an awesome story. And I, I love the the deeper meaning behind it, you know, and that's what makes it so that was that's what makes it so real and brings so much value to it, is is having a having a story like that. You know, it's it's not so much just like you said earlier, just typing in a name in a in a search engine to see if it if it's available. But you know, that's that's a great way to to, to add a lot of value. So that's a, that's an amazing story. So within Fringe Sports, so I, I've got to ask you. You know, you guys develop a, a lot of equipment, a lot of high quality equipment of everything that you make. What's your favorite? Okay. I'll give you my boring favorite first, and I'm gonna give you a more exciting favorite second. So my boring favorite is I love our sandbags. Now the reason I say it's a boring favorite is because fundamentally a sandbag fits into the style of training that I like the best, which is the grind. I love doing burden runs with a sandbag. I've gone hiking with a sandbag slung over my shoulder. 
I've done stair repeats with sandbags. And one of the workouts that I love to do that is just a grind and a beat down is 100 sandbag get-ups for time. And all you do is you sling a sandbag over a shoulder while you're standing up, and then you sit down and lean back until your back or the sandbag touches the ground, and then you stand up again. Each time you stand up is one rep. Uh, males do it with an 80-pounder. Females do it with a 60-pounder. It is a beat down. And if you can do, so it's 100 for time, if you can do it in under 10 minutes, like that is a great amount of, like that, your conditioning is awesome for that time frame because it, it's tough, especially once you start getting into like 40 reps, then you really start questioning your decisions in this life. So I'm a big, big fan of sandbags. Now, but again, it, it's just kind of a boring implement because it's just so basic, but it's something that I love. Now, as for other implements or other strength conditioning things that we've got, we're about to come out with something, and I've not mentioned this publicly yet, so you're the very first person to hear about it. Awesome. We, we are doing a, we don't even have a name for it, so I'm just gonna say what it is. Basically, we're doing a bunch of weighted swords. They're similar to maces, except that the weight distribution on the sword is different than the weight distribution on a mace. And again, you know, a little bit different than a mace, but it's just such a fun implement. Uh, we actually have a bunch of samples now in the warehouse, and I'm having a problem because people keep running away, employees keep running away with the samples, not stealing them, but just they think they're so cool and they love to carry them around, play around with them, swing them around, show them to their friends. And so it really tells me that we're onto something here. And I mean, I love them too. A lot of times I'll just be pacing in my office and I'll grab one of the swords and just be hefting it around. Right. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So that's my non-boring other favorite implement. I, I've seen those around too. And it's almost like a, uh, like a warrior workout almost of some sorts. Uh, the way the way that people are, are slinging those around like you've like you've described uh, I, I've seen those start to become pretty popular so that's that's awesome uh, I'm sure we'll be uh, looking forward to seeing those come out and uh, what are the uh, what are the weight ranges going to be have you figured that out yet at launch we're starting relatively light with a five pounder, a seven and a half pounder, and a 10 pounder. We are gonna do some heavier versions. And when I mention relatively light, that's because the closest implement that I've seen to these right now is basically a mace or possibly like a shoulder rock or something like that from the Kabuki guys. Right. And for a mace, five and seven and a half and 10 pounds are relatively lightweight. That said, they well, I think a lot of people compare them to maces. They're definitely not the same, and, a, and they're a different product. So we are going to come out with some heavier ones later. But early on, we're going to come out with, with those lighter weights of 5, 7.5, and, and 10 pounds. The other thing to keep in mind is I am a Game of Thrones fan. And when I first started seeing Game of Thrones, I thought, wow, those swords look awesome. And when I did a little bit of research into the swords that the people are carrying on screen, they're actually significantly lighter than you might expect. I think a like German broadsword or whatever they're called is really like a one to two pound weapon. Like like very light, but of course very deadly. So even our lightest sword for fitness purposes at 
five pounds is significantly heavier than a true martial weapon. Wow, that's pretty crazy. You would never think that, I guess. Uh, I guess you'd always assume because you're seeing some of the people slinging the swords around that, that they look like they could be a lot heavier, but I guess that's what makes Hollywood Hollywood. So Exactly. <laughs> so with all the equipment, you know, have you know in in doing your own uh, market research and, and looking at ways to improve do you ever buy competitors equipment to to kind of check against your own in terms of quality or just manufacturing standards things like that i absolutely do <laughs> i mean here's one of the things i think that separates us from everybody else is that okay so let's be really clear when i started my company i had a lot of underdog type of attitude or you know was frustrated or like ah oh, we're gonna go get this company or that company <laughs> road probably but <laughs> and, and there was a lot of you know a lot of those feelings there and i still have my feelings about this company or that company but <clears throat> i've spent a lot of time over the last two years thinking about what we are doing at fringe and that's put too fine a point on it what i am doing with my life and I realized that if all I'm trying to do is sell somebody a barbell, you know, fundamentally, if we, we put it down to that, I actually think that that's a pretty shallow use of the reach of Fringe, you know, the, the customers that we've built up, the community that we've built up, and it's a pretty shallow use of my life, like to sell someone a barbell or, or probably anything else. So. What we're really trying to do at Fringe is we're trying to help people improve lives through strength. Like that's what I'm, I'm thinking about a lot is how do we help improve lives through strength? How do we help people get a little bit stronger? Because I fundamentally believe that almost no matter who you are, a little bit of extra strength, all else equal, is going to make your life better. If you are an elite athlete, and we have a lot of customers that are elite athletes, a little bit of strength, it's pretty line of sight how that makes your life better. But if you think about it, if we have another customer that is, let's say, a sedentary person, a little bit of strength makes their life actually a lot better mm -hmm. than it might even make that elite athlete. And while that elite athlete probably knows how to get a little bit more strength or at least has a plan for it, the sedentary person or the person at the beginning of their strength story or strength journey, they probably don't know how to go down that road. And the paradox there is it's actually hard for that elite athlete to gain a little bit more strength. Like they know how to do it. They have the discipline to do it and they're well positioned to do it, but it's very difficult for them to do it. However, the sedentary person, they don't know how to do it. They probably don't have much of the will, but if they actually do almost anything in the strength and conditioning world, they're actually going to get those novice gains very quickly and amazing. So I think it's at least equally as important to help those beginner athletes with their strength journey or beginners in any case, as it is to help those elites. So one of the things that we talk about is at Fringe is from couch to competition, and everyone in between, that's who we care about. We're not only focused on the elites, we're not only focused on the sedentary people who are starting their strength journey, but we're trying to help all of them. <laughs>
And then how do we do that? The way we do that fundamentally, and as I've, I've looked at all of our customers, is by helping people build amazing garage gyms and helping entrepreneurs build thriving community gyms. Those are the two things that we're trying to do. And as far as the selling barbells, that stuff is all gonna work itself out. If we are, I don't know if you're a Tony Robbins fan, but yeah. and I've never been to a Tony Robbins event. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of one of those fans that like, has barely paid him anything. I bought like two of his books. But one of the things that he talks about is if you want to be wealthy or if you want to you know, have great things, help people greatly. Yes. And, and while I do believe that Fringe helps people by designing, developing, and marketing amazing gear, at the end of the day, that's not what we can really do to help people and to make a difference in people's lives. At the end of the day, when we help them improve their lives through strength, that's really gonna make a meaningful difference for them. And the way that we do that is by helping people build amazing garage gyms and then also helping entrepreneurs build thriving community gyms. So back to you know you talking about, <laughs> we got off this tangent because you asked about me like testing the competitor's gear. I am constantly testing competitor's gear, ordering, using, lifting on competitor's gear because I'm not just trying to, again, sell you or anyone else a barbell. I'm trying to genuinely help people improve their lives through strength. And if there's some other competitor that's doing it better than we are, I want to A, see what they're doing, and B, I potentially want to send our customers to that competitor. So one of the things that I've, I don't know how much you follow, to be honest, I'm not in charge of Fringe's Instagram feed. I've got some awesome people on the team who do that. And one of the things that they ask me is they're like, hey, sometimes there's somebody with a garage gym and they've got a bunch of fringe stuff, but they also have a bunch of our competitors stuff. You know, should we post that on our feed? And I said, absolutely, we should post that on our feed. Like our feed is not look at how awesome fringe is. It's here's how you can build awesome garage gyms. Look at what some of our customers have done or look at what just some people have done. And if they've chosen to go with our competitors, we shouldn't be like ostriches sticking our heads in the sand and just believing that our competitors don't exist. We should instead be like, oh, look, they went with this uh, squat rack or this barbell and they're improving their lives that way. Good for them. Like, and, and genuinely good for them, not in any sarcastic way. Right. I, I think so, that's a good strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, that's. So I keep up on the, on the competitors, but I'm not like, you know, I, I do want to be, I, I am very familiar with the competitive landscape, but. At this point, I genuinely and truly am just trying to help people improve lives through strength. And I've got a number of strategies that you know we at French are executing on to do so. But at the end of the day, if somebody decides to lift a barbell or, you know, it has that Mark Rubenzo quote, uh, quote that I butchered earlier, if they decide to walk the, the strenuous path, so to speak, we're there for them. I, I, I love that answer and that's especially I, I love your your description of, of how you handle social media because for most people I would say just for the people who have a general account who, who might follow you or a rogue or a Titan fitness or uh, whoever you know having a, the, the company give you know the the average Jane or Joe a shout out I think is enough to keep loyalty there 
you know, regardless of what it is that they're that they're training with. Uh, I, I think for a lot of people, it shows that your company, you know, it shows that it's real. You know, it's not just a corporation that never responds to anybody. But you know, when when the customer is, is purchasing a product or you know tagging whoever, and then they get a response from it, I, I think for a lot of people they they get a lot of enjoyment out of that, and it, in turn it, it creates more loyalty. So I think that's a, a great way to do it. And and I have your Longhorn bar, and it's it's one of my favorites. Uh, it's the 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 way it's constructed is phenomenal, and the the neural is it's unbelievable. So it's. For me, it's been a great it's been a great purchase. So, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's it's nice to know that. I, I think they'll they'll appreciate that. So, um, so going into so you mentioned Tony Robbins, right? And so, uh, I, I like kind of where you're heading with that because I'm I'm real big on leadership. That's part of what uh, what it is I talk about. You know, my motto is all about strength and leadership. And so, you know, you mentioned for the 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 novice lifter or somebody who's just starting you know all the changes and there's a lot of research that shows uh how people can benefit from that it's that's pretty obvious um what do you think that does for the mind not just the body but what do you think that that does for the mind in terms of of seeing how you know their their bodies change what do you think that does for the mind yeah it's amazing for the mind so there's another quote i'm not sure where this is from Maybe it's Tony Robbins one, but the quote is all discipline improves all discipline. So the, the idea, I think you probably get it, but the idea is that by being disciplined in one area of your life, that it's actually going to improve other areas of your life as well, because you're, you're improving your discipline, improving your ability to focus, improving your ability to handle adversity or some level of toughness. So that is one of the major things that starting a strength and conditioning program can really help somebody with, particularly if somebody is sedentary or doesn't have an experience with that. One of the examples that we give, so there are a lot of studies actually that, that back this up. Uh, one of them, it's a little bit, I'm not gonna say contrived, but you have to extrapolate the, the meaning of the study basically. But what it says is that there's a very strong correlation between the strength of someone's handshake and their their uh, self-esteem, basically. And so what the study was trying to do is it was trying to draw a correlation between strength and some level of success. And what they ended up measuring was the strength of a hand grip or handshake and then how that translated into self-esteem. And, you know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, they found that there was a, a very strong correlation there. So you can actually go and look at the scientific research and, and you can see that there are these correlations that have been proven out by science. But then if you just think about anecdotally, stronger people, people who have experienced this sort of thing, uh, have gone through training, definitely tend to be happier, more self-confident people. And that's one of the things that I like to talk about when I talk to people either who are quote unquote in the life of you know strength conditioning, that sort of thing, or who are contemplating about getting into life, is that the studies show that all else equal, stronger people live longer, happier, healthier lives. And that's what I hit on whenever I talk to people, longer, happier, healthier. 
uh, again, there are a lot of things that you can spend your time on. You can spend your time on video games, you can spend your time on watching TV, you can spend your time in your garage or at the gym working a little bit. And if you spend a little bit of time learning a little bit about strength conditioning, you are going to live a longer, happier, healthier life. It's just proven. How much TV do you watch? <laughs> I watch very little, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of correlation with that as well. I've seen that too. Is that the the people who have more of a purpose? and who have a, a general idea on, on what they want to do and what they want to accomplish. Uh, and Jim Rohn talks about it, uh, the late Jim Rohn, he, he mentioned a lot about how expensive a, a TV can be, not to own, but to watch. And the, the amount of extra work you could, get, you could get done, whether it's like when you were starting out as, as a side hobby, the amount of extra work you could get done is unbelievable. Uh, versus the the average time that most people watch television, and so that's uh, that's not surprising. It's not surprising given with it's pretty obvious that you're a pretty disciplined uh, individual. So uh, that's uh, that's not surprising at all. But yeah, I totally believe in that. So, so here's one of the things, and this is something a lot of people who know me do say that I'm pretty driven and pretty goal oriented. So I have one business partner in Fringe. He's also, so I'm very family oriented. Got my beautiful wife and two, two lovely daughters. He's got a few kids as well. One of the things that I was talking to him about probably about a year ago or something like that is I was talking to him about how I was worried that as Fringe gets more successful that I might be, I might neglect my family. Because you, you hear about that all the time, right. and, and to be honest, especially for a man, uh, particularly in, in you know like American or you know North American society, it's culturally accepted for you to be good at business and neglect your family. Right. You know, even if there may be some downsides to it, people are going to say. I mean, like, okay, let's just go really, really, really big. So Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was a dick to his family. Yeah, he was. But people barely talk about that because and you know not taking anything away from it he was a genius at apple you know gave us the iphone changed the way computers are used completely but that's what people mostly focus on uh how he was a uber dick yeah. <laughs> to his family <laughs> and you know i'm not creating the iphone but i do believe in our work and, and in what I'm doing at French Sport, I do believe that I'm helping to change the world, make the world a better place by helping people improve, improve lives through strength. But so I was talking with my partner and I was worried about, you know, the possibility of neglecting my family as these things happen. And he said, okay, Pete, just hold up for a minute. I have a very strong belief about this. And I said, okay, lay it on me. And he said, the reason that people neglect their families is because it's easy to neglect your family. They're more or less tied to you. Now, sure, you know, people can get divorces and things like that, but he said it's socially difficult. There's a lot of friction around getting a divorce. So there's like lock-in basically with your family. Like it's very difficult for them to change the, the social construct or agreement of you know marriage and, and, and being a family that you bought into plus it is socially acceptable for just as i mentioned before for a man to neglect his family 
What's hard to do, so it's easy to neglect your family, and it's accepted to neglect your family. What it's hard to do is neglect other, essentially bullshit things that may give you temporary pleasure. It's hard to neglect TV and to say, I'm gonna not watch TV because I'm gonna be successful. Uh, or I'm gonna you know, spend my effort with my family and with my company. It's hard to neglect video games, for example, which are another massive time mm -hmm. It's hard to neglect, uh, so I, I went to the University of Texas, I used to really be into UT football, but during the football season, like basically game day, you might give up a whole day. If you go tailgate and drink with your friends, you might even give up more in a whole day because if you, you drink you know, too much on a Saturday, then you're not gonna feel like doing anything on a Sunday. You know, you're not gonna feel like working out, you're not gonna feel about working. So my business partner's like, the trick is you pick those things that you're gonna neglect. And something like TV, your know, TV's not gonna love you back. Something like, I mean, your friends might love you back, but something like video games, they're not gonna love you back. So you put your effort, you choose where to put your effort, choose where to spend time. And you can choose to spend time with your family and choose to be very successful in business at the same time. You just have to work at it and make sure that you do that. And so to the best of my abilities, that's what I've tried to do is choose to neglect video games, choose to neglect TV. To be honest, I do also neglect my friends. <laughs> so, but I, I try as best as possible, do not neglect my family and do not neglect Fringe, my, my other baby. Right, yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, you know, you bring up a couple good points because I, I, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, I had heard you in another podcast talk about, you know, friendship or the people you hang out with, and I'm a big believer in it that the people you hang around with, you become the average of whether they're losers or winners. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Hundred percent believe. Hundred percent believe it's true. I. I actually wanted to found a, a company for many years before I founded Fringe, and this is an anecdote that I've told before. I, at that time, was hanging out with a bunch of people who also wanted to be entrepreneurs, wanted to found their own companies. And one of the things that I realized, they're, they're cool people, like good friends or whatever, but we all wanted to found businesses, but we weren't founding businesses, or we weren't really taking the leap, burning the ships, so to speak. So. I noticed that, so then I started hanging out with real entrepreneurs, like people who were fighting the fight and, and doing it out in the world. And all of a sudden I started, when they were talking about the problems they were having, I just felt like, I felt bad that I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't contribute to the conversation. Right. All I could do is like bitch about my boss and they don't want to hear that because they're somebody else's boss. And, and they're, you know, if I bitch about my boss, they're like, oh yeah, our friends, or excuse me, our employees are out bitching about us just like Peter is bitching about his boss. <laughs> like, so they don't want to hear about that problem. Right. And, you know, the other thing is when you choose to hang around, if you choose a friend group wisely, and this sounds a little slightly sociopathic maybe <laughs> but but if you, if you choose a friend group i'm just gonna say it if you choose a friend group wisely and you choose people who you know care deeply but are also daring deeply and risking deeply then they're going to inspire you to do the same and you're going to have to live up to the norms of that group and and so that's really what i try to do now is i, I try to surround myself as much as i can with people who 
do care greatly and also dare greatly. So they're not, you know, a bunch of assholes, let's say, but they are fighting that fight. Like the great Teddy Roosevelt quote, which again, I'm going to butcher this quote. I actually slipped into Teddy Rooseveltism earlier when I was talking about people who are living the, the strenuous path. Teddy Roosevelt talks about the strenuous life. Mm-hmm. But in this other quote, he talks about, you know, being the man in the arena. You know, it's not the critic who matters, the person who's sitting in the stands saying, oh, this person who's, who's doing that thing should do it this way or should do it that way, but he's not actually doing it. Like, be the man in the arena, bloodying your nose and, and doing it, like living the life. And that's, uh, to be honest, that's one of the things that one of my friends recently challenged me with about a year ago. Fringe had gotten to a certain point. I, I think I had lost a little bit of focus uh, personally in, in leading the company. And he was like, Peter, F you. You need to go and make a mess, man. You need to dive back in and you need to get your nose bloody. Because right now, you don't have a bloody nose and you know, you're know you just getting soft. And so I thanked him for it. I dove back in. I've had my nose bloodied a little bit in the last year <laughs> as we as we take some new initiatives at the company. But he was right, and he was also right to call me out for being lazy and, you know, sitting on my laurels a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, friends like that that can call you out in the best way possible and inspire you in the best way yeah. possible. Well, and that's who you should really hang out with, in my opinion. Yeah. That's who I've chosen to hang out with. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I totally agree, and, and the the people that that can't hang, they'll they'll slowly fade away, and and you know whoever's whoever's stuck around at the end are the ones that that you can really count on because they're going to give you the God's honest truth no matter what. So that's you know that's that's uh, really interesting. So you've mentioned goals a lot too, right? So you know there are there are some some varying beliefs too about goals. Do you write your goals down? Do you write, you know, how do you have a personal vision or mission? Is there something that is a, you know, a visual driving force for you that is kind of like a motivating factor every day? I'm not good about it every day. I I know a number of people who have either goals or vision boards that they look at every day. I probably actually should do that because there have been times in my life when I've done that and found it to be really helpful. But I do have goals and core values that I have written down and review on a regular basis. So for me, my top three are, so this is number one, I wanna be a great father, a great husband and partner, a great man, and a good friend. Number two is I wanna leave a legacy and make the world a better place. And number three, I want to be exceptional. So those, as far as like goal setting, those are what I want to be. And then as far as core values, I've spent a lot of time, you know, we have fringe core values for the company, but I've also spent a lot of time on my own core values. And these have been really meaningful for me. So my core values are number one, servant leadership. And this is something that I've been studying a lot, especially this year. I had a really, my, I'm, I'm very blessed that both sets of my grandparents are still alive. And my grandfather on my mother's side is a reverend. He's been a reverend for, geez, I think he went to seminary in the late 40s. Yeah, he went to seminary in the late 40s. So he's been a reverend forever. 
And I was talking to him recently, had a very revelatory for me conversation with him, and I asked him why he decided to go to seminary. He had just gotten out of the Navy. He was a naval aviator. Uh, you know, World War II had just ended. You know, to my mind, this guy had, you know, many different paths that he could take for his life. I mean, he didn't know that the U.S. economy was about to just, you know, boom and just outpace everything else in the world. But, you know, things must have been pretty good for him, you know, getting out of the Navy as an officer and, and all that. And he said to me, I recognized that God had given me gifts and I saw that there were needs in the world. And going to seminary was the best way that I could see for my gifts to meet the needs. And I really thought that that was profound. And from there, I started looking into, I had already, I always heard about servant leadership, but I found, not that it was difficult, it was just to Google away. I found the original essay that Robert Green, I think his name is Greenleaf, wrote on servant leadership. And I started studying that. And I, I think it really comes down to, you know, what is my best and highest use? And how can the gifts that I've been given help meet the needs that exist in the world? And as of right now, I believe that what I'm doing with Fringe, again, helping people improve lives through strength, I keep saying that. <laughs> I, I think that that's the best way that my gifts can help meet the needs that are out there. So servant leadership is my first core value. Uh, my second core value is, is grow. I just always need to be focusing on personal growth, and, and helping grow and improve things around me. Uh, my number three core value, core value is weird. <laughs> I, sorry, it is literally the word weird. I, I like to do things in a different way. I like to be a little fun and, and off kilter. I live in Austin, Texas. That's a little bit of a, a weird town and, and I like that. Uh, my number four core value is uh, decidal, which is uh, either Portuguese, I'm half Brazilian or Spanish for I decide. And so I'm, I'm, I've been weaving in a number of references here, here and there. Uh, are you familiar at all with David, David Dieta's work, uh, particularly the way the superior man? I have not heard of it. No. Okay. So it's a little weird. <laughs> I'll just put it out there, but it's in that book. So I, I got exposed to David Dieta when I was having you know, just to, to be honest, some issues in my relationship with, with Valerie, my wife. And one of my friends turned me on to this book, The Way of the Spirit of Man. He said, hey, you should really read it. It's probably gonna help you out. So I read it. Uh, you know, one thing I do like to warn people about, because I, I actually recommend this book to a lot of people, about a third of the book is about tantric sex. And <laughs> that may or may not be what you're looking for. It, it was not what I was looking for when I read the book. But the remainder of the book, other than the tantric sex portion, is, is really about masculine and feminine energy and, and what they want. And one of the things that David Dieta talks about with masculine energy is that he says basically, among other things, men must decide. That is part of what is involved in being a man, is making the decisions. Sometimes they're tough decisions. Sometimes they're easy decisions, but you must decide. Let me give you a really easy example of this. That's something that I see people complain about a lot on the internet. Uh, a lot of people on the internet complain about how, you know, uh, their wife or their girlfriend or something like that will be like, 
you know, what are we going to have for dinner? Where are we going to go to eat? And then there's a lot of complaining about how, like, oh, well, you know, the wife, you know, doesn't want to make the decision about where to go or something like that. So I, I had that issue, even though it's a tiny issue, I had that issue with, with my wife. Uh, when I Once I read The Way of the Superior Man, then one of the things he talks about there is always decide, always come with a decision. So if your wife says, like, what do you want to have for dinner? Don't say, I don't care. You know, you make the decision. Say something. And even if your wife disagrees, you can be like, you know, you say, oh, I want steak for dinner. And she says, okay, well, why don't we have chicken? I prefer to have chicken. It's cool. You can do it. You can agree with her there. But don't say, I don't care. Say, this is what I want. And it's it's just such a small little thing, but it's actually helped improve my relationship with my wife a lot. You know, she says, hey, what color do you want to paint this room? Instead of me saying, I don't care, because to be honest with you, I don't care. I say, hey, why don't we paint it blue? And then she says, hey, how about green? I'm like, okay, cool. Let's go with green. But I decide. But I've brought this not only into my relationship with my wife, but just anywhere. I don't ever tell people, I don't care, you make the decision. What I, Because that's what I used to say a lot of times. You know, hey, uh, we're all going out to eat. Where do you want to go to eat? And you say, hey, I'll just go wherever you want to go. Now what I say is, why don't we go to, boom, insert something there. Although, if you have a better idea, let's go to where your better idea is. So I give a decision. They can decide if they can follow or not follow. And then, you know, they can say something out or uh, go somewhere else or whatever. Um, the next core value that I have that I, I follow, and, and this one's a difficult one for me. So uh, <laughs> servant leadership is a little bit of a reminder for me. Decido is a little bit of a reminder for me. I, I, I must decide. It's a, it's a reminder that I have to do it always. The next one is also a reminder for me. Abundance. Like I have to, this is, uh, you'd ask the question about our competitors out there for fringe sport. Mm-hmm. I, I have to think with abundance. And if I think that there are only a set number of, let's say, let's just talk about just in business sense. If I think that there are only a set number of barbells that can be sold today or tomorrow or whatever, then that's just such a wrong way to think about things. So if I get mad at a competitor because they got this sale and I didn't get that sale, that's just such a narrow-minded way to think. Uh, I had mentioned before about you know, this idea that when an economy improves or a, a country improves, uh, you know, becomes, you know, excuse me, I'm stumbling over my words here a little bit. Basically, everyone is becoming fatter and less healthy. So rather than deciding I'm going to fight over selling this barbell or that barbell to someone, you know, a fixed pie type of mentality, let's expand the pie because what we're trying to do is we're fundamentally trying to help people help people improve lives and strength. So if we expand that pie, then if we talk about just from a business standpoint, there's more for everyone. And we're helping more and more people. So I try to think about this kind of in every way. Like how do I, rather than have like a hoarding or a a like closed mindset, how do I just think abundance? And then I'll tell you my, my last core value since I, I know I'm droning on about these core values. And, and this one is really, really, really difficult for me. Uh, so the last one is do the right thing, especially when it's hard. It, it's really tough for me uh, sometimes because sometimes it is so intoxicating to want to either take the shortcut or to do something that is, you know, I know I shouldn't be doing, but I, I know I can do it and I know I can probably get away with it. So that's my final core value. Do the right thing, especially when it's hard. And so I, I think about that one a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, uh, 
that's an important one because it's not only doing the right thing when it's hard, but doing the right thing when no one's looking and, and when when everyone is looking and even when others think it's right or think it's wrong, you know, it's it's a, and, and that goes back to making a decision and and doing making that decision based on what you think is is best and what's right and that's and sometimes it doesn't always work out but it's it's you know and so what happens if we fail and so what you know have you have you had any uh any stumblings you know that others might consider a failure you know i'm a big believer that you're not a failure unless you stop stop like once you quit you're a failure but if you get up and keep moving then you don't allow that to to overcome you. So you know, has has there ever was there ever a you know a turning point for you where maybe you were kind of hit hard in a way with you know starting the business and and others thought, hey, maybe this isn't going to work out, but you pushed past it and and you know saw growth where maybe others didn't. Was there was there any point in time, especially early on, that you saw or experienced that? Yeah, absolutely. There have been any number of times where that's happened. So I mentioned before that I was in the, I, I used to run marathons and I still do endurance events. I, I actually, for a while before I founded my own business and I was circulating my resume now and again, the very last line on my resume was reluctant endurance athlete because no matter what happens, I just can't give up the endurance side. I, I just love it. There's some part of my brain that it really ticks. So anyways, back to, to what you had asked about. When I was running marathons, I always thought, you know what, a distance runner is just a person who's too stupid to stop running. So, so keep in mind, this was me as a distance runner thinking that. Like, I'm just too dumb to stop running because if I stopped running, I wouldn't be a distance runner anymore. I would just be like, whatever, a normal person. So I also think that about entrepreneurs, like sometimes entrepreneurs are just too stupid to stop. And if they stopped, they would be normal and, you know, not pursuing this, you know, quixotic uh, campaign of whatever they're doing. And, and so that, and you'd even mentioned it in this question is a lot of times just not stopping is, is what defines you. So man, this is this is really, you know, really hurts me and really pains me. But it's something that I had mentioned at the start of our our talk, is or sorry, I mentioned a little bit earlier, is that my my brother was the co-founder with me of Fringe. And I'm not gonna talk about it too too much here, but the the hardest thing that I ever did at Fringe was buy him out, and I bought him out after we were together in business for four years. So it's, it's crazy to me, but as I look back on it, starting Fringe didn't take a lot of emotional fortitude. There weren't a ton of like major hits to my ego and who I was starting Fringe. In fact, there was a lot of fun, even though stuff was difficult because like, hey, we're you know starting a company, it's cool. But buying him out and then remaking the company after I bought him out was terrible it was absolutely terrible uh and, and i loved him deeply then although i also hated him a little bit <laughs> at the time um I, I love him again now you know thank thank goodness but the what happened what ended up happening is he had one direction for where where he thought the company should go and should grow into and i had another direction and even as i say that like i can imagine you thinking well it doesn't sound that painful 
you know, I'm giving you like the macro, the zoomed out, the micro, the, the from within that position, it was so, so, so bad. Uh, you know, knock on wood, thankfully I, I've never been divorced, but this was like a divorce. You know, we were fighting over the baby, so to speak, mm-hmm. of fringe. We were, you know, dividing the assets. There was that sort of thing going on. It was like me getting divorced from my own brother. And it, it was absolutely terrible. Uh, you know, at any number of times, I want to be like, you know, F this whole thing. I just want to throw it all in the waste bin and, and I just want to move on. But three things kept me going. The number one thing that kept me going is like our, our number one core value at Fringe is customers first. And I believed then and I believed now that we are doing something special for our customers. And that if we went away, there wouldn't be just another company to fill in the void or something like that. That's something that's truly precious that we're trying to build here. You know, trying to genuinely help people improve lives through strength, that would go away. Nobody would pick up that exact mantle, even if you know some people are doing somewhat similar things. So that would go away. So I, I, I said, I gotta keep doing this for our customers. The number two is I've got to keep doing this for our employees. I know our employees will find other jobs if this were to go away, but they believed in me when maybe they didn't have all of the like logical reasons to. Like, why would you join a startup that could fail when you could theoretically take a similar job at a more stable company? Like you have to, in my opinion, you have to believe in what that startup is doing. And for us, for Fringe, they had to believe in me because it was my vision that they were following. And so I felt like if I just, you know, threw it all in the waste bin and just moved on, then I'd be failing them as well. And then finally, it was all of our suppliers who had helped us out. And I felt like I was really letting them down. Now, you know, they took a business decision to take a risk on us for, you know, one reason or another, but I had still put my name on the line of like, hey, here's what we're going to do. You know, will you guys support us? And a bunch of our suppliers had, you know, mainly in this case, and like, you know, offering us credit and things like that. And if we had gone down, then they would have gotten screwed. And so I felt like, again, for our customers, for our employees, for our suppliers, I had to keep on going and keep on doing it. Now, in hindsight, uh, oh man, that was hard. But I made the right choice. Like it was, it was so difficult, but internally, like I don't go bragging about it. I am telling you the story of it, but I'm not trying to brag about it. I'm just trying to say though, that when I look in the mirror, I'm more proud of how I behaved in that period when it was difficult than I am of when I behaved when I started Fringe, when it was relatively easy. So that's you yeah. know one case where I got kicked pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, and 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 that goes back to what you had said earlier about making uh, the right you know doing the right thing, and and making decisions you know, and so it really it's it's all coming full circle there. So that's uh, I can only imagine how tough that is, especially. Uh, but it it's good that it sounds like you guys are, are on on good grounds now. So that's uh, that's a good thing at least for for both of your sakes so that's good um i got a couple more questions if you've got a, a few more minutes to, to hang out sean i'm yours okay great um so you you mentioned a few books 
already. Is there one that is an ultimate recommendation of yours? You know, you go around and talk to people and, and is there one that you is an automatic go-to? That's an awesome question. There's so many, so, so many good ones. Let me think of what one I would absolutely recommend people to read if you couldn't read anymore. Hang on, so I've got some background noise here. Sure, that's all right. Sorry about that. All right, if there was just one book to read, I would say Find Your Why, which it's not published by Simon Sinek, or not written by Simon Sinek, although he does talk about, he does write, excuse me, the intro. So are you familiar with Simon Sinek's Find Your Why framework? Yeah, and I believe his book was called uh, Start With Why, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Start With Why, yeah. yeah I've read that one, and that, and that one is really good. Yeah, and I, he, he, he makes the, the uh, discussion about Apple. He uses Apple a lot and, and how, you know, the reason why they're so successful is, is they tell people why they make products as opposed to how they make products. And so they go from the inside out rather than the outside in. Exactly. So I, I want to share with you. So Find Your Why is a workbook to finding your why for your company, for yourself, for your organization, something like that. Now, I want to, I want to share with you. So many people had sent me Simon Sinek's YouTube video. It's like 12 minutes long of Start With Why. Yeah, the TED Talk. I, I, the TED Talk, there you go. I had seen it a number of times. And every time I watched it, I thought, this is some millennial bullshit. Why can't, why can't you just go to work, work hard, make a good paycheck, and then come home? So I thought that for many years. And a good friend of mine, who I respect a lot, said to me, Pete, buy the book, find your why, and, and work through it. And I said, come on, man, this stuff is bull. There's nothing to it. And he said, just do it. Just trust me, buy the book, spend a few hours. It doesn't even take that long to read because it, I mean, it is a, you know, 300 pages or 400 pages, but most of it is a workbook. So you actually read quote unquote or get through it relatively quickly. But he's like, spend five or 10 hours and it'll be five or 10 hours that are well worth it going through finding your why for Fringe and for yourself. And so I really respected this gentleman. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So I bought the book. I usually buy books on Kindle. I bought this one as a real book and I spent some meaningful time. And to be honest, he told me five or 10 hours. I think he lied to me. I, I think that I spent at least 20 hours really pondering over this, over a period of time, not 20 hours in a row, of course. And one of the things, I'll tell you one of my massive bolts of, of knowledge from this book is I realized that when I had first founded Fringe, the why of Fringe, so I did care about CrossFit, I did care about strength conditioning, I did care about helping our employees. But the thing that I cared about most was not having a job, not having a boss. And that's what I cared about most. And so I thought, holy crap, that doesn't make, nobody cares about that as a why, except for me, possibly my wife. 
possible. And so I, I thought about it and I was like, wow, I've been chasing the wrong rabbit for a number of years. And so I went through the exercise in the book. I talked with a ton of people, a bunch of our employees, a bunch of our customers. I asked them about stories. When was fringe meaningful to you what, or an employee? When were you most proud? And I started hearing stories from my employees. And all these stories revolved around when they had helped someone out. Maybe that someone had bought something from us. Maybe they hadn't even bought something from us. But their lives had been positively changed by an interaction with Fringe. Again, the interaction could be a purchase. It could be a conversation. But there was a positive change in that person's life. And in every case, the positive change had something to do with strength. You know, maybe it was buying a barbell and then they have a PR. Maybe it's buying a kettlebell and then you know they get stronger and they're able to do something. Like they're able to qualify for a firefighter position or something like that. Because we, we had all these stories like that. So that's when you know I've been hitting hard on this conversation that we exist to improve lives through strength. Because those were the stories that were lighting up my employees and our customers is, is when their lives were improved by strength. And the crazy thing was, when I started hearing the stories, I started getting so proud of what we were doing at Fringe. And I started looking, you know, metaphorically at the world and saying, you know what, we can be a barbell company so that Peter Keller doesn't have to have a boss. But nobody really cares about that. And, and that's a, like, going back to servant leadership, that is a misallocation of my gifts to the needs. But what there really is a need for is for a company or more companies or organizations or whatever you want to call it that genuinely help to, as I put it sometimes, preach the gospel of strength to help people, again, from cash to competition, help all people as much as we can improve their lives through strength. And so that's why if you just, if I just had to recommend one book, because I have got so many books, <laughs> you know, hundreds of yeah. books probably. That was a book that was so meaningful to my life. Now, I want to mention one other thing about the, the Find Your Why book. So it was recommended to me by one friend. I ran into another friend who also knows the friend that recommended the book to me. So this is the third friend we're talking about here. And he was asking me, he knew that I had bought the book and had worked through some of the exercises. And he asked me what my employees and customers had said about me working through the why of fringe sport. And I said to him, I don't really need to talk to them about it. I can figure this one out on my own. And I, I was sitting down, we were both sitting down, we we're eating lunch together when I said this. He literally jumped out of his chair and he said, that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard you say. And I was taken aback, he was yelling at me. And he says, the most arrogant thing I've ever heard you say. And I said, I said, why would you say that? Like, I'm trying to, you know, find a why. I'm trying to help people. And he said, you just said that you're smarter than every one of your customers and every one of your employees. Are you smarter than every one of your customers and every one of your employees? And I said, absolutely not. I'm, I'm for sure not. And he said, so why won't you seek their wisdom? Mm. He said, if you won't seek their wisdom, you are arrogant. That's why I called you arrogant. And that's why I said it's the most arrogant thing that I've ever heard you say. Go seek their wisdom. And so I went away from that talk 
And I went and started meeting with my employees and my customers and asking them some of the questions from this book. And he was right. I'm not smarter than my customers. I'm not smarter than my employees. They help me to see the truth, to see the light. So anyways, <laughs> long answer to your question. Yeah. The, the find your why book. <laughs> that's, uh, that's phenomenal. Well, and it, and it, it, again, it goes back to what you had mentioned too, with that, the servant, the servant mindset and, you know, doing for others to, and then they'll help you get what you want, you know, and that's, uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big believer of Simon, Simon Sinek. And, and I, I think he has a lot of very interesting things to, to talk about, especially leadership. And I, I like, I like to listen to him and John Maxwell, and I kind of bounce both of their ideas off of one another because, you know, it, they're the same, but yet they're not. And, and uh, you know, the way that Simon Sinek talks about leadership, it's almost from a from a, uh, a corporate level, and John Maxwell is more on almost on a on a personal level, you know. And, and so there's there's some different uh, interactions there, and, and some. Uh, things to take away so but um, you know I'm gonna have to look into that because um, I I had seen the book but I had not invested enough time to to do any research so that's one that I'll have to I'll have to pick up so I appreciate that Um, how about a quote you got a favorite quote is there something that is is a go-to for you whenever somebody asks me that I have a few quotes that run through my mind but when you ask me that The first one that came, which is one that I often go to, is when the student is ready, the teacher shall appear. I don't know who said that, but it's something that I think about a lot. When the student is ready, the teacher shall appear. Mm. And it's something that I've really seen in my life that somehow, and, and I don't know what your belief system is necessarily, I've got, I'm on a spiritual journey myself, but, but it's just been strange to me how just when I need something, I need some knowledge or I need some guidance, the universe has provided. So when the student is ready, the teacher shall appear. Mm, I like that. That uh, That's pretty deep. And uh, that's, um, that's one that takes a minute to kind of wrap your head around because that could be, it could be literally anything. And it doesn't even, I guess, necessarily have to be a person, does it? No, it doesn't. The universe often, I, I'm so blessed that the universe <laughs> gives me so many lessons on, on such a regular basis. So many teachers appear, whether they be human and, and real or, you know, me not paying attention and, uh, you know, running into something on my bike. Yeah. So That's a teacher there. Do you think that everything happens for a reason or is it is it is it predetermined or what are your thoughts on that? No, that's that's a deep question. I fundamentally believe that we are ants or specks of dust on a rock hurtling through space and from a cosmic or my dad's a geologist from a cosmic or even geologic time scale nothing we do matters however that doesn't mean that we aren't children of a loving God 
can make a positive change for the fellow ants, moats, and specks of dust that are here on this brief life with us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. It, you know, well, and I, I've always had trouble too wrapping, wrapping my, my brain around it. You know, I, I, I saw a couple statistics that, you know, the chances of individuals like me or you or anyone else being born, it's like one in, I think, four, <laughs> 400 trillion, I think it, I think it was, if, if I was correct on the statistic. But it's like, you know, the fact that we, like an individual, are here, it's almost impossible. But yet here we are. And the more I've started to think about that, the more it's, it's come into my head that like, well, then you should do something with it. You know, instead of just kind of wandering around aimlessly with your head in the sand, and and very much like you, you've you've gone out and and, and are are working and living that right now. So that's that's fantastic to see and hear. So, um, kind of my my last question here, my uh, my uh, conclusion, if you will. So, any entrepreneur, they want to start a business. Maybe they've heard this. And they're thinking, wow, that, that sounds great for them, but my business is nothing like that. I don't have any technological skills. I'm not in e-commerce. I want to have a physical store or mine's not in fitness. I just want to be an entrepreneur, whatever. You know, what is, you know, what would, what's your best advice to, you know, to have for somebody to, you know, to want to be their own boss and, and ready to make that leap, but they're not really sure how to go about it? Great question. I have something of a different idea, I think, than a lot of people. So I'm a member of an organization called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. And Entrepreneurs Organization is a global organization. However, it's hub by city, so I'm a member of the Austin chapter. And one of the really interesting things I've seen in EO is that entrepreneurship often looks very different than many people think that it looks from reading about it in blogs or things like that. I would say fundamentally, first of all, you can be an entrepreneur in just about any business. You can have a lawn services company and be one of the best entrepreneurs that there is. I've got an entrepreneur friend, I'm gonna allow him to remain anonymous and he runs the most old school he's a young guy but he runs the most old school boring unsexy business you can possibly imagine and he runs it like a freaking champion he runs a world class and i am always in awe of him no one knows about him i could i'm again gonna preserve his privacy uh, i could say his name nobody would know who the heck i'm talking about because he's so quiet and so humble, but he runs a freaking amazing business that I'm just in awe of every time I see what he's doing. So the, the very first thing I would say is open your mind to, to what entrepreneurship can be. It doesn't have to be tech, it doesn't have to be you know e-commerce, it doesn't have to be anything like that. The next thing that I would say is the best framework that I've ever seen for entrepreneurship is the lean startup methodology. And my number one takeaway from lean startup, which you can read a book, you can read blogs about lean startup, is cobble together 
what they call an MVP, minimum viable product. Start selling that and then go from there. So for me, to be honest, I followed the same, I used that methodology that found Fringe. I found the easiest to find product that I could possibly sell to someone. And at the time it was, the very first product I sold was gymnastics rings. And the only reason I sold those is because I was able to find a source for those at a good price. I couldn't find a good price source for anything else. So I thought, you know what, if Fringe is going to be successful, I have to be able to sell gymnastics rings to people. And then once I was able to sell gymnastics rings, I thought, let's see if I can sell something else to the same people that I was selling gymnastics rings to. And for me, I found a good supplier for kettlebells. So I said, okay, well, let's see. And so it wasn't necessarily a logical leap from gymnastics rings to kettlebells from a like kinesiology or strength and conditioning standpoint. It was more, I could get gymnastics rings. Okay, what else can I get? Okay, I can get kettlebells. They're somewhat related in that someone who buys a gymnastics ring a uh, set of gymnastics rings, rather, might buy a kettlebell as well or in addition to or instead of. So let's see if we can sell those to that same demographic. So if if I were, let's say, not in e-commerce and wanting to do consulting or something like that, like let's say nutrition consulting, I would say, all right, what does my like minimum offering need to be to get people, to get customers? And I, I want to be really clear. I would go for, with your minimum viable, pro- viable product, I would go for customers. I wouldn't give anybody freebies. I would say, you got to pay. Because one of the things that I ran into, particularly when I was in my wanting to be an entrepreneur stage, is that all your friends and your mom, they're going to be like, you're awesome when you're trying to found a business. Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily going to pay you. So the ultimate test of whether you've got a business that might be viable is will someone pay for it? And so I would start charging for your MVP from the very start. I wouldn't make any excuses from it. I would just say, here's what I got. Will you pay X number of dollars for it? So, so that's, that's one thing. Now, the, the number two thing I would say, and Lean Startup, at least at the time when I was going through it, didn't talk about this. Uh, there's another great book called Killing Marketing. And one of the things that Killing Marketing talks about is how one of the fundamental attributes of a company or a marketing department of a company in whenever it was written, you know, maybe 2015, but just as valuable today or even more valuable today than it was then, is the ability to build and maintain an audience. So let's say that you think that you've got an idea, or sorry, you think you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to have your own business, one of the amazing skills to build would be the skill to build and hold an audience. Now, that might be on Instagram. It might be for a podcast. It might be for an email list. It might even be for a blog or something like that or a YouTube channel. But if you can build and maintain an audience, you can find a way to add value to them and make money from that value. That, that's not so hard. So if somebody wants to be an entrepreneur, I would say look into Lean Startup and see if you can come up with that MVP, minimum viable product. That's one great way. Another great way, or which could be combined with it, is try to learn how to build and maintain an audience. Those are two amazing things that would really help, I think, anyone on their entrepreneurial journey. That's, that's amazing. That's great advice. I, I think... Just about anybody can uh, can benefit from that. So, 
Wow, I, I, I greatly appreciate the time, Peter. Thank you very much, especially on a, on a Friday night. I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one that uh, isn't uh, watching high school football, I guess, right now. So <laughs> There you go. But, uh, well, I did spend the morning with my, my wife. I took the day, the morning off work, and hung out with her all morning as part of a, you know, don't ruin my family for, for business success yeah, plan. Yeah, yeah. So getting a lot of your advice not only helps me I think it can help a lot of other people so the uh, the advice and just hearing your story and hearing what, what you know what motivates you and, and your your training background and everything else as a as a lot of value to me uh, just as an individual so uh, I really appreciate the time and if well hopefully uh, maybe in the in the near future we can uh, hook up again and, and do a little bit more conversation because I really enjoyed this I'm in. I enjoyed it as well. Thank awesome. You. All right, Peter. Well, uh, thank you very much, man. Have a great night. Have a great weekend. And uh, and we'll talk soon and, and uh, go from there. Cheers. All right. You too. Thank, Do well, Sean. All right. Thanks a lot, Peter.